Welcome to Season 2 of Voices from the Land, a special podcast series produced by the Legacy Hope Foundation. In this podcast series, we'll hear about Indigenous language revitalization projects and efforts to preserve and promote Indigenous languages across Turtle Island. Join us as we learn more about how Indigenous languages are helping Indigenous peoples connect, know, and remember the voices from the land. Hello and welcome to this podcast on Indigenous languages. Voices from the Land is an Indigenous language podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Its goal is to capture more perspectives and voices on Indigenous language revitalization. We are seeking to capture a range of perspectives to better reflect the many people engaged in Indigenous language revitalization. Our aim is that by listening to teachers, adult learners, and parents or guardians of children in language classes, we can gain more insight into what are the challenges and barriers, as well as the solutions and positives. In turn, we hope this will form a larger discussion on how to support Indigenous language revitalization. Thank you for joining us. In this episode, our guest is Trisha Logan. Trisha is an adult learner of the Mitchell language, the language of the Métis. Hello, Trisha, and welcome. It's good to speak to you again. How are you today? Hi, Gordon. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing fine. Doing fine. Sunny skies here in Ottawa today. Maybe you could just start telling us a bit about yourself and your background and uh, your Indigenous affiliation, family, community, that sort of stuff. Sure. Trisha Logan Dishnikashoyen, Kekebeka Falls, Ostinia, in northwestern Ontario. Uh, he... Uh, Vancouver, New Weekend. My family is originally from the Brett, Saskatchewan, and um, the Kapal Valley, and now live around Thunder Bay, Fort Francis, and I moved out here to Vancouver to work at UBC. And so I'm Métis, and my dad is Métis, and my mom is Polish and German, and she immigrated to the north end of Winnipeg when she was a child, and then met my dad, who's uh, Métis, and whose family comes from Lebrecht. And I came to Machif through working with residential school survivors. And that's part of my job now, is working with histories of residential schools and settler colonialism in Canada. Very interesting. Did you grow up in Winnipeg or part of your life was spent in Winnipeg? Yes, yeah, I spent probably, I spent 20 years in Winnipeg. I went to university there. I did uh, degrees in native studies at the oh. University of Manitoba. That's interesting. Two interesting points. Uh, there's lots of Métis in Winnipeg, and uh, some was some. I have some Métis friends there, and also you must know Peter Kolchinsky that uh, from you, you went to U of M, right? Yes, yeah. I was one of my professors. Yes, I did. Yes, yes. Uh, we had him on as a guest on a oh, cool. uh, on a previous uh, podcast. Anyways, okay, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some of what you've learned as an adult learner. What are some of the barriers or obstacles you have faced while trying to learn the Michif language? Yeah, I definitely came as an adult learner. My grandmother and my family members went to the Labrette Residential School and would have not spoken any of their languages. But later, I think some of my cousins and my aunts who lived in the Metis farm in Labrette would have spoken some Michif and some other Métis languages, uh, but that was definitely not something that anyone in my, my immediate family spoke. So I came to it as an adult learner. And so definitely uh, one of the barriers is, of course, finding time and finding resources to, because uh, people have jobs and <laughs> people have, you know, kind of 
nine to five jobs and life reasons that just keep people from having access to teachers and elders and time to really practice too and having a space to practice the language and keep up with it. Where did you learn the Mitchell language or when did you start to learn it? My two teachers when I first started were Grace Zolby in Camperville and Rita Flamond in Camperville. I came to that through the master apprenticeship program. I did the master apprentice language revitalization program. That was in 2007. At the time, I was working for the Métis Centre at the National Aboriginal Health Organization, which existed, which is an Indigenous organization that existed before um, government funding ended it. But through that organization, I had this amazing opportunity as someone who's not a linguist or someone who's not necessarily good at language, but as someone who was working with, in the past, I worked with residential school survivors and Métis residential school survivors. And at that time, I was working with traditional healers Meeting knowledge holders, meeting elders. At that time, um, it was kind of a bigger question of, okay, how how can an adult language learner who has no history with the language but has a lot of interest in it acquire language through the master apprentice? So Rita very uh, generously let me come live with her for the summer in her cabin on the shores of Lake Winnipegosis in Camperville. So I'd spend the mornings with Rita and the afternoons with Grace. And I'm sure it, maybe in the past you've talked about master apprenticeship, but it's where you, as a language learner, live with a, a master speaker, teacher, elder um, through kind of an immersion program and acquire language through daily immersion and doing, we would cook and work in the garden and go for walks and just sit by the lake and stuff and try to learn and acquire and speak every day in the Chiefs Valley. Oh, that sounds like a, a wonderful working and learning environment, working in a garden by the lakeside. It was, I was yeah. very lucky, yeah. I was very, very fortunate to do that. Yeah, I can't imagine there'd be a lot of barriers. Uh, did you find any barriers in doing the, uh, the master and apprenticeship program, as you described it? What type of uh, barriers did you come across? Anything that happened or that you had to look out with while you were there? I was very fortunate because I, Rita let me live in her cabin. She had a cabin that was very close to her house. And so having somewhere that I could live there for the summer and somewhere that I could live and kind of hang out and stay <laughs> um, really helped. Like it, that was a huge help for uh, Rita and Grace to welcome me into their home so generously and that we were we were able through a little bit of grant funding, able to make sure that Rita and Grace got paid and that were paid at a level that was, you know, that honored their time and honored their decades and decades of knowledge and traditional knowledge. Because of course, I think that's part of the master apprenticeship program that I, while you're in it and you're so immersed in the language, you're not immediately maybe getting it all, but then after afterwards you're realizing how much traditional knowledge and indigenous and machif knowledge you're acquiring and stories and laughter and <laughs> oral histories that you're acquiring all at the same time. Um, and then you're able to kind of step back and, and and really take a look at the immense knowledge that both Rita and Grace had, aside from the Machif, is of course it's the context and the content of what they're sharing every day, stories and uh, histories and poems and songs, and uh, Grace would often sing and she would pray in Machif. 
So to be able to get all those teachings and as well as the language all at the same time to live there. So I think a barrier is, I can imagine that, you know, without a space to stay or at the time I didn't have, I lived alone. And so I didn't have, I didn't have kids or I didn't have a spouse. So I could stay for a month or several, you know, I could stay for weeks in a, in a, in a row without going back to my home, which was in Winnipeg. Um, but I'm sure with other kind of family commitments and work commitments. And I had a job that allowed me to kind of work from home and live in Camperville for that summer. So I think, I think if I didn't have a job, I, I don't always, haven't always had jobs that allow me to have that kind of flexibility. Could you describe a little more on the, uh, the master apprenticeship program? I, where is this from and uh, how does it work? Um, I think there is a long history of it. I, I'm, I'm not a linguist or a language <laughs> or a language expert, but I, I do know that a lot of it was, uh, there's a lot of stories about master apprenticeship programs that come there after atrocity or come after genocide. I think some, from the little that I do know, I think some of it was also applied after the Holocaust and after Yiddish and Jewish languages were uh, obliterated during uh, the Holocaust that pairing language speakers with survivors and pairing language speakers with younger learners uh, became a method for language transfer. And it's not always associated with trauma, but I know there, of course, in Indigenous languages across North America, people use that method of working with, especially with endangered or where there's very few language speakers left in a community or in a language group, pairing elders and language speakers with language learners, adult language learners, or younger language learners to kind of create that immersive environment, to create that master apprenticeship where you you live and you do daily tasks, like get having coffee in the morning and having meals together and uh, working together, where you are kind of immersed in a learning environment where you are with the traditional knowledge, traditions, teachings, day-to-day tasks, conversational styles, and that was what was great about working with Rita and Grace. They were very different in their teaching styles. Rita would kind of uh, do a lot of memorization and uh, vocabulary, and we would try to put sentences together in kind of a school, in a kind of a, a different format. And then Grace, in the afternoon, I would come in and she'd be kind of, Pitekwe, Pitekwe, come in, you know, like invite me in and then tell me what she did that day. She'd be like, oh, this today, this morning, I went to the, sh- to the shops and I went to the store. I went to the doctor, I saw my son and would tell a funny story about her grandkids. So it was very conversational. It would be very immersive right in there. Would it be in uh, Mitchell? Yeah, all in Mitchell. And and they were very generous to let me record quite often. Sometimes I would turn it off if it was, we were talking about personal stuff or traditional knowledge or medicinal knowledge. But most often they would let me do audio recordings so I could replay them at night, replay them in the car to try to learn. But I think that's the greatest barrier. That was in 2007. And I think the great, greatest barrier for me as an adult learner, <laughs> I, when I retook my shift lessons during the pandemic, I would often say this, that I became the poster child for use it or lose it. And that's for any language that I've learned is if I didn't keep it up and if I didn't speak it every day, then it starts to, it starts to fade. And right. um some people really have a, a better or different ability to hang on to it or to keep it up every day. Yeah. I find that different people have uh, 
different abilities, different levels of ability to to pick up a language. Some do it a lot easier than others. I'm probably one of the worst in trying to turn, learn a different language, uh, but I've been lucky to be able to uh, grow up as a child with my grandparents and learning Cree through them. And Cree is very similar to Mitchell. I can understand what you were saying uh, at the beginning when you said a few words in Mitchell. So, so it, it, it does come from the Cree language, I believe, even uh, some French mixed in there. So Tana, I think it was a good learning experience uh, living uh, with Rita and the other lady and uh, learning from, from them and using the master apprenticeship approach, program approach. And what other positive learning methods would you say you've, uh, you've experienced? What has worked well, well? What's worked well, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, uh, for all the things that are said about what happened during the pandemic, during like 2020, 2021, of all the terrible things and all the loss that happened, I think one of the benefits from it was being able to take uh, Zoom Machif lessons and kind of revitalize what I learned back through Zoom. And the University of Manitoba allowed registration for out of province or, you know, kind of anyone could register, even if you weren't a student at the time. In a, Heather Suter teaches uh, Machif 1 and Machif 2 level courses from the University of Manitoba. And it, she was able to teach that on Zoom through September 2020 and through 2021. And so I was very fortunate. And some of my colleagues here at, uh, in Vancouver and Burnaby, I met them, re-met them through uh, Machif online. And that was amazing. It was amazing how that came together and how language learning worked on Zoom, partly because we were able, and I think it worked well, and we were able to pick up on it because we ended up using Zoom as kind of chat space. Everyone, most people were in Manitoba, but there were a couple of us in BC and everyone had very different backgrounds, but all wanted to learn Machif. And so we would have the classes every day, but then we would also have practice sessions where we would just kind of hang out and study and practice and just have like texting, WhatsApp space and Zoom space to just talk in the chef. I guess we're, uh, we're lucky we have technology and, and Zoom to continue the work and uh, things that we do in our, in our normal lives without Zoom and without the technology. I would bet that life would be much more frustrating and difficult uh, with this pandemic happening. So. We're, we're very lucky in that way and to be able to continue on doing our work, some of us anyway. And also, okay, so in your language experience, what would you like to see change or improve? Giving space for it at different times, different jobs and different... I've been a student and I've been a... Like I've been a university student. I've been a, an employee at, at different spaces. I, I have or haven't been given the time and space to take a couple hours out of my day to go to Machif lessons or to go to language lessons. And so for for kind of any organizations or jobs or creating space in whatever form that takes to allow people time to sit with the language and research with the language and giving space to have non-English work done would improve a great deal. Like having, that was what was so wonderful about Zoom is we were able, especially during the pandemic when we couldn't 
no one could really go anywhere to be able to form a community of speakers of people that would practice and ask each other phrases and share other words. But knowing, I think we all knew too, that there is no replacement for being able to do that in person, to listen to language speakers one-on-one and listen to laughter and kind of see body language and, and go through things, go, you know, go on walks and go have experiences in the language. You know, there really is no sitting one-on-one with kind of orality and listening to speakers in person. So while we're trying our very best to replicate that online or in chats or on websites with recordings, with uh, dictionaries and recordings where you can listen to the language over and over and lessons and tests and knowing that everyone also has different learning styles, (laughs) you know, that people, some people listen better or learn better through listening, or some people learn better through writing it out or trying to get words to see the words on a page or to listen to elders speaking. I think just giving people space and giving people access to it and having institutions, organizations, groups, Métis groups or Indigenous groups give not just financial support to make sure that the teachers and elders and instructors and language speakers are paid well and well supported and that they have time to create the resources, create the space themselves. But yeah, I think I was, in some cases, I was very fortunate that I was able to do that. And in other places, I didn't always have that support where there was kind of like, mm, you're taking time out of your day to, to learn a language that isn't <laughs> English or French. So um, if we're talking, yeah, if we're talking about what could be done better, what could be done, yeah. it's, it's creating those spaces, yeah. What would you say is the most important thing to keep in mind while learning your Indigenous language? What is the most important thing to keep in mind? It's something I've learned recently and that I maybe hadn't learned, you know, five, ten, or one year ago, was there's often a memory of what the language should be, um, but there's so many things that change and there's so many conditions. And the language changes all the time. There isn't always a perfect version and there isn't always a perfect translation or even a perfect writing system that you learn based on community standards and that prairie or woodlands or Turtle Mountain Machif is different from northern Saskatchewan Machif. Mm-hmm. And that there's as much as we want in kind of, you know, the way we've been trained in school or in Western style schools, that there's rules for everything, but there aren't always um, there aren't always the same kinds of hard, fast rules. Part of it is is learning to listen to elders, learning to listen to your teachers, learning to listen to language speakers in not only the language that they're transmitting, but how they're transmitting the language and honoring that in their context and in their community context. That is the right way to do it. As a kid, I took Anishinaabe Mawin in Thunder Bay because I grew up in Thunder Bay and my dad spoke Ojibwe as part of his work and as part of his teachings. And so I was always around Ojibwe because that's what was spoken quite often in Thunder Bay. In in our house, my dad would often teach us Ojibwe terms. And so there was always language and my mom would teach us German. There was always language around and different contexts for language. So I think it's it's learning to give space in your own home for for teaching language and speaking language and talking with your kids and talking with your family. Right. It takes a lot of work. You have to be consistent. <laughs> but actually comes part of your life. You got to make it part of your life, right? Uh, if you want to learn a fully learn the language. 
How many languages do you know? Do you speak? <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> none well. <laughs> um, my mom speaks German, and so I learned German a little bit from my mom, yeah. and I'll speak a little bit. I did learn as a, as a kid. Uh, actually, I think my dad took us to kind of a kid's level Ojibwe because he wanted to start himself at a child's level. But of course, as an adult, you don't always want to admit that you're at a child's level. So he brought me and my brother to the classes with him. And so I had, yeah, I had learned Machif and learned German and, and, you know, and a little bit of French. And I said, <laughs> I always joke. I was like, how many glasses of wine have I had? But sometimes it's for me, some speaking, speaking some language, it's, it's, have brave, brave enough to make mistakes that yeah. I think I, myself, I get a little shy that I'm going to make a mistake or I'm going to say the wrong thing, or I kind of pause before I say something. So with a little bit of bravery or yeah. <laughs> you, you give yourself a little bit of courage right. uh, in a room full of speakers or people that you know will let you make mistakes. Yeah. And yeah, you get a little bit braver to be able to just put sentences together and it's kind of like a barrier, right? Uh, afraid to make mistakes when you're uh, when you're learning a language. I know that when I speak uh, to my mother, for example, she'll uh, she'll listen, but I'll always be cognizant of the fact that you know, am I saying the right thing, or you know, I'm, I'm always you know careful that I get my message across properly because the languages, indigenous languages are always different from each community to each community, you know, there's slight variations, right? There's, there's slight, slightly different accents also that, you know, different innuances that, you know, that the community will use that have developed over a period of time. We're getting close to the end here. I think I got a couple more questions for you. Are there any other Indigenous language initiatives or projects happening in your community that you'd like to share with us? There's, there's so many. I, you know, I, I came from Winnipeg and moved out to Vancouver where there's this, it's a very different language landscape out here on, on the Pacific coast. Uh, very different. <laughs> um, but I've learned so much from language revitalization from people who use language every day of Hungaminam language of here, uh, like I'm talking today from Musqueam territory and Musqueam teachers and language speakers have welcomed us, helped welcome me here as a non-Hungaminam speaking person, but how the language is used and how it's kind of immersed in the territory here in UBC territory is really helpful to kind of help me reframe. And then I've been able to, to meet other language learners, other indigenous language teachers, like when I was learning Machif online on Zoom through the University of Manitoba with Heather Suter, Heather is definitely not only just a teacher, but she's also very much, she calls herself, I think, a, an activist, as someone who advocates for the language. And I think that's something that here with the First Nations Peoples, uh, the First Peoples Cultural Council, and a lot of language leaders here in BC where those intersections meet between language teaching, language learning, and language activism, and not necessarily activism, but advocacy to be able to create language nests, language, uh, like kind of preschool programs, K-12 programs, and working with residential school survivors for all of the 
the work that's being done with residential school histories and intergenerational trauma, uh, how to connect language with all of the kind of healing work. And I'm sure that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a, a conversation that's had very often at the Legacy of Hope as well. And, um, but seeing how that works, seeing how that works and seeing groups of language speakers getting the right support. Being in BC, are you like uh, right in Vancouver, in the, the city of Vancouver? Yeah. Yes, I'm in the city of Vancouver, right on UBC campus. So, uh, so okay, you, you also mentioned you're uh, kind of connected to the Musqueam uh, and take that in the Indigenous language band or group in, uh, in, the, in the Vancouver area. Is that true? Yeah, the, um, I think through the work I do at UBC, I've been connected with Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh and Musqueam, but here geographically, kind of where, where I live and where I'm situated and work, live and work is Musqueam territory and uh, the Ankaminam languages is everywhere. Musqueam has done incredible work. I'm sure not always easy work, but to create signage and create presence for Ankaminam languages and create courses courses that anyone can take, that anyone at UBC can take courses at Musqueam in Hunkaminum to kind of connect. It's it's kind of, in a way, trying to connect to the, the knowledge and history of this space. I'm a prairie person from, from you know, from Winnipeg. And so getting knowledge of this territory is inherently connected to language. And they've been, they've created amazing resources. Yeah. Okay, so... So it's through the University of BC that they've uh, they've done some uh, programming around Indigenous language. Yes, and the yeah, and the community um, that you can. I'm not sure how it operated, how it operated during the pandemic. I think some of it was virtual, yeah. uh, but through the Museum of Anthropology as well, they partnered to create courses in kind of Musqueam 101. They called it okay. to talk about Musqueam culture and history and cultural heritage as well as language and some people take the Hunkaminum courses as part of their teachings about the tri- territory. So Musqueam is the uh, predominant First Nations group in, in the Vancouver area? Mm, there's also Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh as well okay. um, depending where you are in this in this <laughs> the, the kind of the way that Vancouver is broken up so there's a lot of Squamish speakers as well, yeah. and then kind of the north part. I'm in the the end of the Cessnom, the village that was called Cessnom, mm-hmm. um, that is part of Musqueam territory. But then if I move a little bit downtown, or if I move a little bit towards North Vancouver, towards Squamish territory, Tsleil-Waututh, it's, it's often we acknowledge all, all three as kind of a, a, a shared space. And a space where obviously those histories between Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh always kind of interchanged between each other. Tsleil-Waututh or Tsleil-Waututh? Yeah. Okay, I have one more question, uh, and it's kind of uh, a general question. Do you have any recommendations for people who want to learn their Indigenous language? Yeah, and people often ask me how I started. They're like, "How did I come to uh, Indigenous language learning as an adult learner?" And I came to it because I had worked with residential school survivors for a while and I was working in areas of kind of, I was working with the Aboriginal Healing Foundation and the National Aboriginal Health Organization and at the time Legacy of Hope. So I was very much working with survivors and elders, knowledge keepers. I'm sure that's talked about quite often at the Legacy of Hope as well as how connected language is to all of that, to all of the 
uh, trying to create healing programs and trying to create resistance and resilience. And all of those teachings are connected to language. And so I think for anyone, it's knowing why, because it's, it's hard. It's, it's not easy, I think, in groups of language teachers, where I've been able to go to other gatherings with other elders and language speakers from, from a lot of different First Nations and Métis and Inuit communities, they're very honest about, you know, it, this takes thousands of hours of practice to become fluent in a language and to keep it up and keeping up with it and keeping language in your life every day is, it's hard. It's not, it's not easy. And it's, and some of it is very emotional work. Some of it, for some people, it's very, they're hearing the voices of their parents and they're hearing the voices of their grandparents. Um, so some of it is inherently connected to trauma work, not necessarily just in how the language was, was forced yeah. away from people, but in recovering it, in recovering a language that was spoken by your ancestors and by your relatives. And that it's frustrating sometimes because you want to be able to listen to your grandparents and parents and community members. And it's frustrating because you're still at a learner's level. And so it's easy to be discouraged and it's easy to get frustrated and it's because it's, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard work. So it's just putting, it's having time and finding time to put in the work and keeping up with it because even I, again, poster child for use it or lose it. We try so hard. That's my, my friends, uh, Ashley and Jennifer out here. Ashley Edwards is a Indigenous librarian at Simon Fraser University. And we try to message and keep up texts in the chef just to, just for that reason, to keep it up and practice, practice, practice. Excellent. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this with us. Uh, Trisha Logan, Assistant Professor at the University of British Columbia. Thank you again on behalf of Legacy of Hope Foundation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gordon. Voices from the Land is a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Music is provided by David Finkel. For more episodes like this and to learn more about the work we are doing, please visit www.legacyofhope.ca.